Hello, welcome, welcome, welcome. Hello, I'm Dan, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Welcome to the live stream. I'm Dan, your friendly fishmonger at dansfish.com. We do this every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. That's 9 Eastern for those of you that are mountain challenged. And I'm glad you could join me today. As per usual, we'll be doing our shipment report. We have a giveaway of maybe the most unique fish I've ever seen in my life today. I'll talk to you about him or her, it, <laughs> um, shortly and tell you all about it. It's a really interesting fish. I'm getting a report that audio and video are good. Thank you for letting me know, uh, Myrtle and Maria. I appreciate that. Thanks to my mods for being here. Good to see you all. Anyway, let's get, oh, and then I'm going to be giving you an update on the warehouse and it's, uh, it's exciting. Things are moving. Let me get that brought up now, actually, so I can have that ready. Okay, so let's start with the shipment report. Um, if you were here last week, you know it was bad last week. We have one or two reports every year where things, uh, multiple things conspire, and for some reason there's lots of delays, and um, when that happens, there can be some issues. So. That was last week. The good news is that this week, no losses. Everything arrived. We're back, baby. We're back. Was it <laughs> George Costanda's father? I'm back, baby. <laughs> anyway, um, it went really well this so far. So everything's back on track. Um, we might have one more in 2022. Again, there's usually one or two per year where we have significant losses, which for us um, meant a little less than 2.9% losses. Um, usually, though, our losses are less than half a percent. So for us, it was, you know, a lot higher than normal. But this week, no losses. As far as people have reported, um, if that's wrong, if you did have a loss, uh, leave a comment, let me know, or email me, dan at dancefish.com. Let me know so I can... Uh, not just keep track of losses on my end, because that's very important to us, but also take care of you. Make sure that, uh, make sure we, I don't know, refund or resend or help solve the problem or whatever, whatever needs to be done in, in your case. So, but we're back. Cheers. No losses um, this week so far. So it's pretty good. That's where we usually are. And it's good to be back. <laughs> Last week was a little rough reporting. I didn't like that. So, um, Something else that's cool is, um, well, we'll get to that in a bit. First, to the giveaway. All right. So the giveaway tonight is for a very special jewel cichlid. It's a uh, Turricana jewel cichlid. Hemichromus exul is a scientific name. And usually, when you look at a jewel cichlid, you will see pectoral fins. You will see ventral fins. You'll see an anal fin a caudal fin, and a dorsal fin, right? That's usually what they have. However, the jewel cichlid that we're going to be giving away tonight is one of a kind. I've never seen anything like this. Here's a picture of it. You'll notice pectoral fins. You'll notice ventral fins. And then you'll be like, hey, wait a minute. Where is that anal fin? This fin right here. What is going on? There is no anal fin, but if you move here, you'll kind of see it here. So what's happened on this fish, which is super unusual, 
is the anal fin has been misplaced. It's growing up along the side of the fish and it's fused with the dorsal fin. So instead of an anal fin and a dorsal fin, it has a uh, doranal fin. <laughs> Dorsanal fin, I don't know what you'd call it. One fin, it fused together and became a single fin. I have never seen anything like this in all my years of fish keeping. Um, this is a very unique fish. And I didn't want to sell it because I don't like selling fish that are, you know, not formed normally. <laughs> Let's put it that way. No idea what it is. One person had the thought that it might be an absorbed twin or something like that. Um, I don't know. I just know I've never seen a fin growing up the side of the fish like that. It's like, I don't know, it's like a, a frilly old time shirt, like the, the neck collar of someone from the court of Queen Elizabeth, just this big puffy furl um, or something like that. But the fish is totally healthy. It holds its own. It swims just fine. Um, it shared a tank with normally formed, um, a big group of normally formed Turricana jewel cichlids for several months and it's fine. It's not getting beat up or anything like that. So doing great. But I thought it would make kind of a cool giveaway. Um, it's just because it's just one of a kind. I've, I've never seen anything like this before. So the giveaway for this week is a single fish. It's this fish right here. Just one Turricana jewel cichlid. But one you'll never see again, I don't think. And so, I don't know. I thought it'd be, I thought it'd be a fun thing to do on the giveaway. So if you want to win this fish in the photo, um, to do so, hashtag frills will get you entered. Hashtag F-R-I-L-L-S because, let's see here if I can, there it is hashtag frills, just because the way it's all put together, the dorsal fin and the anal fin to me reminds me of like a frilly, you know, Elizabethan collar. <laughs> so that's why I did that. Hashtag F-R-I-L-L-S, frills. Um, doesn't matter if it's capitalized or not, but that is how you can get entered into a drawing. If you want to win a, a deformed, but really unique, really cool fish. <laughs> now, for those that don't know, um, we have a whole article here on these fish in one of our past newsletters. So I'm going to link our newsletters here. Um, if you would like to read about this species or autosynclus or gold roseline barbs or hairy puffers or lots of other things, um, I have listed a link in the chat where you can go look at our newsletters and um, read up on this species. If you need some more info to know if you should draw or not, if you can take care of them or not. They're a jewel cichlid, one of the more peaceful of the jewel cichlids, but not right for every community tank. Uh, like all jewel cichlids, they can be aggressive, although less aggressive than like this five-star general or the typical jewel cichlid you'll find in Petco or PetSmart or whatever. The Hemichromis genus is known for being a uh, pretty darn brutal. <laughs> this one's more peaceful, but I've had, had mixed results. I've kept it with rainbows and it beat them up. I've kept it with tetras. It didn't bother them at all. And I've kept it with uh, catfish and didn't bother them at all. So it seems like, uh, you know, 
it does fine with some fish and not others. So be aware of that. Okay. Now I'd like to just give you what I think is a super exciting update about the warehouse. So here is what I'm excited about. This was yesterday. We built our first two sides of uh, aquarium racks. So this rack here will hold 15 aquariums. And that's the first one. We have a lot more to build, but we were able to get into the warehouse and actually start building, which is huge for us. Um, big step, able to get in there and get going. So that was yesterday. Today we moved a bunch more material down there and tomorrow we'll build, uh, we wanna build three or four more sections for the racks. Um, this is a picture of half of the surface well. Since then, they've done the other half here, so it's twice as big almost, um, and put a whole bunch of gravel in here. By the time it's done, there won't be any water on the surface. There'll be enough gravel and stuff that, um, and then they'll put a, a cloth over and put topsoil on and plants and stuff. So you won't even know there's all this water under you. You can walk across that thing and everything, um, but all that water is draining through all that gravel that they put in there and supplying the fresh water for our um, warehouse. So anyway, it's far enough along that we've been able to get in there and I've started building racks. That's going to be my focus uh, for a while because now that we can get in there, the clock's ticking. So every day we're in there but are not set up and not able to sell fish, um, we're incurring quite a bit of expense without making any profit, right? So we need to make that transition into that warehouse as fast as possible. So that's become a very large priority for me very suddenly yesterday, the moment I could get in there. Um, we have some help coming. Um, we, we've hired someone to help out and they'll be arriving February 1st. And um, we also have, uh, we found a local student. So I help out the local high school biology department. I supply their fish and if they have a disease or whatever, I'll go up and help them treat the fish, give them medicines, show them how to do it, all, all that stuff. And um, when I was up there last time, the biology, one of the biology teachers told me that there was a student that would come in early before school, mess with the fish, come in on our lunch break, take care of the fish, get the guppy babies out to raise them, all that stuff. And it was just really into it. So I said, well, let's meet this person. So I met them, they came over, um, put them to work a little bit, they did a good job. And so we've decided, decided to, to hire that student. And uh, it's just great anytime you can find a local person, uh, a young person who's super enthusiastic about fish. Um, and I'm really happy to give her an opportunity similar to what I had when I was her age, which was, um, there was a, a fish keeper that hired me to come. I'd come in on the weekends and I would clean the tanks and, you know, pick eggs from the killifish mops and stuff like that. And I was in heaven every weekend going over there doing that. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be able to do that. So we've, we found some more help. And as we expand, we'll, we'll be needing some more help. So that's where we're at kind of in the warehouse project to the expansion project. We're looking at some, uh, different purchases and equipment and things to to make the operations side even more efficient. We've been looking for quite a while 
but we're, we're getting that narrowed down on a few fronts, trying to find ways to make it a little more, it's not automated, but less steps to seal a bag. So there's certain machines you can buy that will, um, you can put the bag in and they'll fill, fill them and seal them. And instead of doing like the six steps or eight steps that we take every time we seal a bag, we can put it in there, it'll seal it and feel it, fill it, put it in the second bag and it'll seal it. So we're talking about a lot less steps and that'll make the bagging, not the bagging of the fish, the sealing of the fish before they get sent out to you folks, they get mailed out to the customers a lot more efficient, which is good because that's one of the biggest time sucks um, that we have. As you can imagine, individually bagging and sealing each fish, if the volume we're doing takes a lot of time and with the increased volume of the warehouse, we've got to find ways to be more efficient about it. So we're looking into some equipment like that. We're looking to, into uh, boxing equipment. Not sure if we'll pull the trigger on that yet. Not sure exactly um, um, so when you invest, these machines are expensive. And when you invest into them, you have to figure out, okay, how much time is it going to take before it pays for itself? Right. And we're not sure that the box one is the way to go yet. Uh, we need to collect a little more data on that, but there are some box machines out there that will, you can take your box, run it through, and it'll automatically tape them and package them. I mean, we've already put the insulation in and the liner in and the fish in and all that stuff, but you send it through and it seals it up for you nice and neat. So looking at some things like that. Um, so just trying to, as we get closer to moving in there and getting set up for operations, trying to think of ways to make it more efficient. And there's some folks that have helped with that. So one of them is here. He knows who he is. Um, we've had uh, a video chat with, with this person. Um, and uh, I just want to thank them for their help. Uh, again, and we're working on collecting the data, but my my focus has been so sucked up with construction and getting this latest import. Um, we got some new fish in, getting that in and settled and everything that I haven't had time to to jot down any any task times or anything like that. But I haven't forgotten, <laughs> and. My focus for a while now is just going to be get in there as quick as I can, um, get the shelves up, get the aquarium system set up and all that. So for a while, I'm going to be very occupied trying to keep the business running and at the same time moving into the warehouse. But once that settles, we'll get some more tack times together and and be able to move more on that. Um, but anyway, it's good stuff. We're super excited to be moved into the warehouse and be moving on. Um, for those wondering about the new import, it did arrive um, it's doing well. And next Wednesday, I'll be going over that with you in detail and probably launching um, the fish for sale live next Wednesday, because that is the date we, they arrived on the 13th. So next Wednesday um, is the day that they'll be ready to go. So I'll probably do that live. Um, I might do that Tuesday. Tuesday or Wednesday, but there's a possibility that uh, Wednesday of next week we'll actually be able to post all that and get it on live at that time for you, which is kind of exciting. just makes it a little more fun. I'm not going to go over in detail today uh, what that is, but we'll do that next Wednesday for sure. Um, whether or not we listed at that time or not, I'll, I'll go into all the details about it. 
Um, and, and the reason is, the reason I do it this way is I used to show the fish before they even arrived. I'm like, here's what I ordered. And then there's always disappointment because not all the fish arrive and people would be all excited about a certain fish and invariably that would be the one that did not arrive. <laughs> so I ended up disappointing a lot of people. I was like, that's not good. So then I waited for the fish to arrive, but sometimes the fish needs a longer quarantine period. Sometimes two weeks is not enough. Um, and it might be that they're fighting off a disease, but often it's not even that. It's just that they aren't settled quite right. Um, they aren't like used to tank life fully yet, I guess is a way to put it. Or they're just not eating on the foods that we feed readily yet. We're still having to do special foods and stuff. And they haven't transitioned over yet, the ones that we transitioned. So there's, there's different reasons for that. But it used to be that as soon as the fish arrived, I would let you guys know and go over all the fish that came. But then we would disappoint people again when something took a longer quarantine period and wasn't ready and stuff like that. So now what I'm trying to do, and, and it's not just, so there's two reasons not to do that. One is disappointing customers. And two is the work that comes along with disappointed customers. So, you know, all the emails back and forth, are they there yet? Did they get released? What's going on? All that. So it's not only are they disappointed, but it creates more work on our end too. It's not very efficient. So what we're trying to do now is wait until the fish are through quarantine or just about through quarantine and we're confident they're going to be good to go. Um, and then at that time, go over the list of what came in and uh, that way people can order and there's a lot less disappointment. So that's kind of why we do it that way. That's the evolution of, <laughs> of the time period of when we go through fish. We'll go through new fish with our, our audience. All right. Okay. I think that's all I've got. So with that, we're going to turn it over to you folks. Find out what's going on in your neck of the woods. Please feel free to leave a comment or a question. When you do so, if you would make it at Dan's Fish or type in Dan's Fish and select... Uh, it'll turn bright orange for us. If you're on an Android, it might not. Um, a certain certain devices don't allow you to select, but type Dan's Fish and give it a go. It might turn orange for me. Sometimes it does, even though it doesn't let you select on your Android device. I learned that from uh, Myrtle the other day. I think I got that right, Myrtle. Please uh, clarify if I got any of that wrong. But anyway, I'm looking for these bright orange boxes, which appear when people make the chat, uh, the question or comment to me. So I know it's for me and uh, yeah. All right, before we get into that, I just wanna thank my moderators quickly for doing what they do. Thanks for being here every week. Thanks for putting in the time. I just appreciate it so much, every one of you. Sincerely, thank you. All right, with that, I'm going, was someone buffering? Oh, looks like someone was, but most people aren't. If you are buffering um, and others aren't, then hitting refresh will often help fix that. Okay, here we go. First one I can see is Tragic Lace. <laughs> tragic Lace. That reminds me of like a photograph you would see on like a doomed vampire romance novel. 
the puffy shirt. <laughs> Tragic lace. Are jewels hard to breed or not? I've been thinking about breeding them. No, jewel cichlids are very easy. There might be a hemichromis that's difficult to breed, but I've never heard of it. As far as I know, all the hemichromis are easy to breed. Now, there might be an exception to that, but in general, that's a super easy genus to breed. Um, however, a lot of them, when they breed, are very, very protective. Translate that into uber aggro. And so often they need to be in their own tank to breed or they'll, uh, they'll just annihilate everything else in the tank. So now that's a generality. I'm sure there's exceptions to that. Uh, and the Turricana jewels I have breed often and are in there with uh, catfish and other jewels. They're in a 75 gallon tank, but there was a big group of them. So they would breed in the corner and um, there were so many other jewel cichlids that no one got annihilated, right? There was some get out of my breeding area, but it was a big enough tank that everyone was fine. So there's ways to mitigate that, but do be aware, yes, easy to breed, but very aggressive when they're breeding. Highly, highly protective, excellent parents, in part because of that aggression, ain't nothing gonna get over there and eat their babies. I mean, they make sure of that, but um, yes. Alexander Engelhardt, Alexander, thank you again for another wonderful super chat. That's, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Love seeing the warehouse updates. Hey, I love sharing them. And it was amazing to get in there yesterday and actually be able to get some stuff set up. Uh, I feel like we're on a roll now. My goal, oh, I'll jinx it with timelines. My goal though, is to have the racks done, the tanks on the racks and plumbed into the system and everything and be done that. Uh, by March 1st. That's my goal. I think I can do it. Um, as long as my back don't give out, I think I can do it. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's the goal. After that, then the uh, then there's a third party that will come out and balance the entire system. So uh, the Plumbing and HVAC company puts all their stuff in, puts all the equipment in. The engineer is working on getting that surface well done and the pump in, in the cistern for our water draw and all that. And to make sure that everyone's do, done their job correctly, a third party comes in and balances the system. Make sure each part is working and each part works in harmony and that we know how to easily control it and maintain it and all that. And so that might take, uh, once we've got our stuff up March 1st, there might be a little more lag time because uh, we have to wait till that third party comes out and balances the system. But once that's done, we should be ready to rock and roll. So that's, that's kind of where we're at time-wise. Knock on wood, um, you know, as we say in, in Wyoming, God willing and the creek don't rise. Gold Nugget Pleco, high rack at you. Gold Nugget Pleco Tetra. If I win, please give the fish to Bob or Maria Z. Rank you. <laughs> How high did I rank? <laughs> no, I, I know, I know, I know. Fat thumbs on phones, I get it. New Mexico Aquatics, in your opinion, what is the lower end of the temp range for bristlenose plecos? Little Bobby. So Little Bobby, um, it's a, 
it's a somewhat difficult question to answer just because the bristlenose pleco, as we're calling it, is a common name and refers to fish that have a very wide range. I think from Uruguay, maybe northern Argentina, southern Brazil, where it gets quite cold. Sometimes you can have ice over the ponds and rivers and things. On up to, uh, to, to the Amazon proper and up to like, I don't know, how high do they go? Up to Venezuela, Colombia. So pretty much most of South America. And there's all different kinds of environments and temperatures through there. So to answer that in any kind of really uh, nuanced way, we would need to know where the bushy nose came from, um, which locality did they come from. But without knowing that, we have to assume it could be a bushy nose that came from central Brazil, uh, where it's really warm, um, or um, you know, up up in Colombia or Peru or something like that, right? So taking that in mind, I would say uh, lower 70s long term would probably be a safe low temperature for a bushy nose if we don't know its location, if we don't have good provenance on it. If we know its location, then we can really zero it down. But without knowing it, and that's probably unrealistic in most cases to know what it is if we're talking about common bushy nose that, that are... Pretty much we know they're ancestrous, but that's about it. We don't know which species. We don't know if they're pure. Uh, maybe they're a hybrid between species at this point. Like there's a lot going on with the common bushy nose. So with that, I would say low temp, low 70s long term would probably be okay. Um, something like that. Tragic Lace. Did you get any guppies? I have some guppies available right now. Um, I did bring in a batch of panda guppies because I'm trying to um, figure that fish out. And I'm working with a veterinarian to help us figure that fish out. Um, I've tried a few different suppliers um, and having some issues with them. So I think I've checked Indonesia off the list for panda guppies and we'll need to try next time, say Israel or, um, you know, something like that. Because I've, I've tried the different suppliers that I know of in Indonesia and keep having some issues with them. Now, I have got good panda guppies in before. Um, was able to get some hobbyist bred ones and stuff like that. But the, uh, yeah, yeah. So I did bring in one kind in my effort to try to solve that one. That's one I really want to keep and carry. It's very popular and I personally like it a lot. But um, I don't think it's a great batch. Now, they might just need some time to acclimate. Um, they might be fine in like a month or something like that, but they're not going to be ready for a while. Yeah. And I didn't bring many in. So I have brought some guppies in and we've, we found some that are doing well and all that. And we found some that aren't doing well. So that's kind of helping us know which suppliers to bring them in from as we try to figure the guppies out. Um, and, we will try again, probably once we get in the warehouse, 
the plan is to do an order maybe from Israel this time. Um, there's also actually, there are a couple biosecure facilities that I can try in Southeast Asia as well. But I think I'm kind of done trying to find um, healthy guppies or guppies that I can make healthy from your typical, you know, uh, Southeast Asian exporters, uh, the, the farms scattered around. I just haven't had any luck. Now, I might try one more time when we get in the warehouse because those water parameters are quite different than what I have here. Um, and so I might try a couple more. And if that works, great. I'll keep doing that. But so far, even working with a veterinarian and things, um, we some have been fine, some haven't. But enough haven't been fine. We've put in enough work trying to figure out your basic, you know, I don't know, Sri Lankan or whatever guppies that I'm, I'm convinced that's not the route to go if I'm trying to get healthy, hardy guppies into the hobby. So I need to expand and look at some other, other, other options. My hope was that uh, working with the aquatic veterinarian that I'm kind of have on retainer, that we would be able to pinpoint what was going on and uh, figure out how to, a, a process or a procedure that we could put newly arrived guppies into that would, you know, solve the problem. The issue is we haven't been able to pinpoint the problem. We've done lots of lab tests. Um, we've had lots of work done and paid a lot of money <laughs> on the business side of things. You always got to think about the money, unfortunately. And uh, so far, no dice. Haven't been able to pinpoint a problem. So right now when they come in and they're doing well, it's luck. And when they're not doing well, it's luck. And I don't want to deal with luck when it comes to guppies. Um, what I'm trying to do is solve the issue we're all having these days of guppies just aren't as hardy as they used to be. Um, and unless I can pinpoint the actual problem and come up with a, uh, a process, a protocol to mitigate that problem, then I don't feel like I can complete my goal. So we'll try some different suppliers, see if they do well. And if they don't, see if we can pinpoint what the problem is there. But until we find either suppliers where they do really well for us or suppliers that we can run the tests on and send them to the lab and things and actually get a concrete result of, you know, these come in and they don't do well, but the reason they don't do well is this, and we know how to treat that and take care of it. If, if, if that doesn't happen or they, or we don't find us rock solid guppies, then uh, I don't know if we'll be able to complete my goal at this point. Maybe I'll only be able to deal in hobbyist bred and raised guppies or something like that. But, but there's some other options. Like I said, Israel, um, some biosecure facilities and other places. So I've got some more work to do. But yeah, it's not, it has not progressed as I had hoped it would. So uh, yeah, we'll keep trying though. We haven't given up yet. Michael Millier. Automatic tape dispensers are fantastic. We use them at Amazon and they are a huge time saver. They also use the same ones at Aquarium Co-op. Yeah, yeah. As long as, um, so when, when you're shipping dry goods, it's not, as important that the box 
be folded tightly and sealed, right? But when you are um, shipping live fish in styrofoam lined boxes, you need to get it tucked in tight so the seams on the plates of insulation get tight against each other before it's sealed. If you don't do that, you'll end up with these gaps and then cold or hot air just blows through and screws up the temperature in the box. So, um, so it's not quite as simple as just run it through and shut it. It needs to be seal the styro in tight and then shut it. So that's kind of the machine we're looking for. We're talking to a couple manufacturers and folks that can engineer that kind of thing to uh, see if we can see if we can make that happen. Unfortunately, it's just a little more specialized than what they use at Amazon. Well, I mean, when you <laughs> we chose the hardest thing. We chose trying to do live fish in a way that would be consistently successful. You know, the fish would arrive alive and healthy to our customers consistently and try to be able to do it efficiently. So we chose the hard problem. I don't know why. <laughs> Probably because that's what I was interested in, what drew me and what I felt really needed to be solved. But a lot of the equipment and things that works really well for like dry goods and stuff like that doesn't quite cut it for live animals. So it just adds that little extra bit of complexity, which makes a fun puzzle. I mean, we're, we are having a great time figuring this out. Okay. I'm scrolling up here. Bex fish room update on pygmy corridors fry. Yay. Bex. Awesome. Two are big enough to school with the adults. One is developing its adult coloration. Just found at least two more today. They look to be freshly hatched. Got footage. Bex, cheers. Awesome. I will be checking out your YouTube channel because I want to see that footage. And uh, glazo to you. That is amazing. Congrats. Pygmy Cory's breed it. <laughs> if you ever get to the point where you're able to churn out, you know, 100, 200 of them, um, I'd be more than happy to buy hobbyist raised Pygmy Cory's. Right, Snoopy Booch. <laughs> Any word on samurai gouramis back in stock? So, the samurai gouramis and the um, chocolate gouramis, I'm I'm not planning on bringing in again until we move into the warehouse. I just think that that constant fresh flow of water is going to do wonders for them. And here's why I think that. Okay, beta macrostoma a bucket list fish for a lot of people. Let, just real quick, if you don't know what Betta Macrostoma is, first of all, check out Simply Betta's YouTube channel. Shout out to Taylor, does an excellent job. But also, look at this. So imagine this fish at, what, five inches? Like they get good size and they are, these are not Photoshopped manipulated images. A breeding fish is this colorful. Um, they are really, amazing bucket list fish. I have not dared keep them yet. And here's the reason why they're super expensive. And, um, and they come from blackwater habitats. And so I can transition fish from blackwater habitats to aquarium water, but I know the time and the effort it takes. And I know the risk. And if I ordered a, 
a big group of these at the price point they are, and they did not make the transition, that's just bad for the business, right? That's not, that, that can't happen. So I spent a lot of my hobby looking into this fish over the years because one day I'm going to keep it and breed it. And um, one thing I found as I was looking at the problem and trying to figure out if I could bring them in and, and how to care for them. And long ago as a youngster, just plain old how to source them at all and keep them and such. There's some very successful beta-macrostoma keepers out there that um, swear by UV filtration. So they're very susceptible to velvet and some other things. And the idea is that the UV filtration in your aquarium... Oh, did I not share these? Sorry. I don't remember if I shared these earlier or not. If I didn't, here they are. If I did, let's look at them again. They're super pretty. Um, so anyway, the idea is that the UV filtration will kill a lot of the pathogens and makes it so that these keepers that I know that are successful with beta-macrostoma, they attribute a lot of their success to UV sterilization. So if you think about it, what's a UV sterilizer doing? It's taking a little bit of water from the tank, sterilizing it more or less, and returning it to the tank, and just doing that over and over and over. Well, what if instead of a sterilizer doing that, you just add fresh, clean water to the tank over and over and over? Same result, right? The pathogens are not building up. They're getting removed. And so one thought about those sensitive blackwater fish, and I, sensitive in caveat, uh, in, they they're not sensitive once they've acclimated over but if they're mishandled during import or export whichever side you're on um and if they are not if you don't take the time to really baby them through the acclimation process um you won't be successful and it's a lot of work and I, i've done it many times and i've you know successfully sold lots of you guys chocolate grommies and uh, pygmy garamis and licorice garamis and samurai garamis and all that, wild type bettas. But um, it's going to be a lot easier, I think, once I get in the warehouse because I'll be doing the same thing UV sterilizers do, the keepers that use the UV sterilizers. I'll just be using fresh water instead. And so I'm going to hold off until I get in the warehouse. And then I'll, I'll try a couple species. I'll try probably licorice garami and a chocolate garami and maybe a samurai garami. And um, see if indeed I'm right. See if that constant fresh water keeps the pathogen load low enough that they can easily acclimate to uh, aquarium life without having to go through all the medications and things and those complicated procedures that I'm currently having to use. And so my hope is that I am right. And then um, I'll be able to help transition blackwater fish with with a lot less effort and cost in medicines and, and all that that goes along with that. So, so that's where I'm at on that, uh, snoochie booch. <laughs> snoochie booch. I don't know if I have heard a more like, um, I want to say like disgustingly, like cheesy, romantic, like I'm picturing like a, newly engaged couple romantic in public name 
since Seinfeld had no your smooch. What was it? Wow, what was it? Snoochy, smoochy. Oh, I forget what it was, but there was a Seinfeld where they were doing something like that. No, you're smoochy. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and don't take that the wrong way. I think it's great. That's hilarious. Snoochy booch. <laughs> How's fish? Did the Irabesco puffers come in? They did not. They were shorted. They did not make it into the packing list. So they were on the order and they were on uh, the penultimate paperwork but they did not make it onto the ultimate paperwork so unfortunately i did not get any of the irubinesco puffers i was really wanting them yeah i like that fish a lot i've seen them once in my life and i like them witchy lynn an update on samurai grammys i think i just covered that uh real stinks i just got my fish out of my 75 gallon that split the seam Ooh, yeah will it need to take all the glass apart or just reseal it. I think I have a video for you. Now, big disclaimer, anything's possible. I'm, not, I'm taking no responsibility here, but I do have a video here on real resealing a 75 gallon. I think, um, yeah, okay. 75 gallon aquarium repair, I had a, uh, I cracked it when I was drilling it and had to strip out all the silicone on the seams and stuff. And I, I show you how to do that here. So instead of, um, wait, it says it's only two. Hang on. We got to, I got to make sure this isn't only two seconds. If it is, there's an error. What is going on? So let's mute this here. Sorry, guys. I just want to make sure. Okay, yeah, that's the full thing where I go through the whole thing here. Yeah, show you how to do it. Yep, okay. So I'm going to refer you to this. I'll, I'll link it in the chat here for you, this video. And I've, I've resealed lots of aquariums. Um, the biggest aquarium I've resealed was a 125-gallon tall. I've done 75 gallons, lots of 30 gallons because I have some really old 30-gallon 30, 30 breeders. Uh, let's get out of there. Um and the way I do it, and this might not be right in every situation, but it has never failed me yet. The way I do it is I strip out all the silicone. I don't like pop the glass apart and get it from between the glass, but I take off all the silicone that I can reach with a razor blade um, that's kind of outside of the seams. Strip all that out and it takes a while. You got to really get it off because silicone does not adhere to itself. Like old silicone and new silicone do not adhere. Man, it'd be nice if they did, but they don't. So um, get all that off. Then I take like alcohol. Um, is it rubbing alcohol? I don't know. The kind of like nail polish remover, alcohol, that kind of stuff. And uh, clean those edges really good to make sure that the silicone is going to stick really nicely. And then I just reseal there. So I, I leave the tank intact, take off all the silicone I can, and then reseal it. So far, it's never failed me. I don't know if this, if on, in your case, that would maybe be the one that did. Um, so, you know, I can't, don't want to take liability for that because when it goes wrong, it'll be my fault. But reels, I've done it many, many times and it's never been a problem. But that video goes over the entire process. I think, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't watched it in years, but if I remember right, it should take you through the process. 
Mac PNW. Do you think a single stentocranus, so we're talking about lion head cichlids, um, steatocranus, thank you, there we go, steatocranus, and a featherfin cynodonus could cohabitate in a 36 long? I do. For a while until permanent homes are found? I do. Yes. Um, yeah, I think those would be just fine. Absolutely. Provided size-wise, you know, the catfish isn't big enough to eat the buffalo, not lion head, buffalo head. That's what it is. So these are really cool fish. Um, for those that don't know this genus, let's see here. There's a lot of them. This is one of the fish I kept um, as, a, as a kid. I remember raising up a batch of tiny little fry. There's a lot of them. And often they come from West Africa and flowing rivers. They have a wide range of habitats. But look at the different. So this is why they're called buffalo heads. What They're calling it blockhead here. They were buffalo heads when I was growing up. You get these big, big heads. And then you have other kinds, which are like super long and slender. But they're, they're river fish, so they generally come from flowing rivers. And you can really see that in this kind of long, thin, torpedo-shaped one. If I remember right, they don't have a swim bladder or they have a very curtailed swim bladder because they need to be able to, you know, stay put in fast-flowing water. And so, like darters and all kinds of gobies and other fish that live in those environments, they've lost or have a greatly reduced swim bladder. Really interesting fish. Um, really good parents. Not not like super colorful or anything, but but you don't need color in every fish, right? Sometimes just uniqueness and behavior and all that is is interesting enough. So, um, but mac and pie, yeah, I, I've never tried it, um, but I think that that mix would work okay. You're gonna want to have lots of hiding spots and things for the cynodonus pipes and caves and all that. Um, but I think that could work. Cancer Train, how do you feel about breeding weird mutations like the giveaway jewel? Personally, I wouldn't do it. Um, but it's a personal preference thing. Like whenever I see the parrotfish, like the heart parrotfish, let's see. <laughs> I forgot to, how to spell heart there for a second. Like the Valentine's Day parrotfish. So this is a parrotfish that literally does not have a tail fin. It has a dorsal fin and an anal fin. It's missing the tail fin. So it's kind of like a heart shape. I don't know. Every time I see that, like my soul bleeds a little bit. It's, it's not, I don't like it. That's personal preference though. Here's where I draw the line on mutations. If it affects the quality of life of the fish, I think it's wrong. I, I mean, why wouldn't it be wrong? Right? So um, if I've never kept those heart parrotfish or Valentine's Day parrotfish, but if they can swim around normal and act normal and feel normal and eat normal and all that and don't have massive health issues or whatever, then I don't have a problem with it. I would never keep them, but I wouldn't get on the warpath about it or anything. Um, if the fish is able to live a life and happy, then with me, that's okay. Not that I would ever keep it personally, but... If someone likes that, great. Flower horns, whatever. You know, there's all these all these examples. Well, flower horns are more hybrids than deformities. But um, there's lots of examples. Balloon fish, all that. But if 
if a mutation or a deformity makes the fish have a worse quality of life than it otherwise would, then I'm like, uh, I, I probably can't. I, then I draw the line, I guess, for me personally. So that's how I feel about it. Um, the jewel cichlid I'm giving away is perfectly healthy and happy. He's holding his own with the other jewel cichlids. He's not, doesn't have a hard time swimming or anything like that. So if someone wanted to breed it, I pers- I wouldn't like be like, that's immoral or how dare you, or that's unethical. But um, I, I wouldn't personally want to see it bred, but you know, to each their own, I guess. So I guess that's the answer. If it's actually hurting the fish, harming the fish and making them have a bad life or less of a life than they otherwise would. So one good example is bettas. I love bettas. I like veiltail tail bettas. I like half moon bettas. I like placat bettas. I, I've bred and raised lots of bettas over the years. Um, ever since I was a kid, I've liked them. But there is a certain betta, which is beautiful. It's called a rose tail betta. which has this beautiful extra furly tail, like a lot more tail finage than a normal betta. It just uh, a lot more fins to deal with. And you can get a problem with these where there's so much tail as they grow and mature. Oh, I'm not sharing this, here we go. There's so much tail as they grow and mature that, um, that it gets super heavy and it's ungainly and the fish literally has trouble swimming. It's a huge effort for them to get off the bottom and go up and get a gulp of air, right? So that's a beautiful fish, but I personally would not keep one. And I I question whether it's wise to propagate that fish just because I think it ends up having a poor quality of life. And to me, there's plenty of beautiful fish in the world without propagating a fish that is going to be miserable. Or, I mean, I don't know how I'm personalizing here, right? I'm... (laughs) (laughs) How do I know if a fish is miserable? But when I see a fish struggling to get up just to get a gulp of air and get and then sink back down and it's exhausting itself just trying to do what bettas do, which is breathe atmospheric air um, and have trouble swimming and all that. I don't like that. So that's that's my thoughts on that cancer train. No, I'm not going to like choose someone out who's like, I love my rose tail better. Like I have celestial eye goldfish or heart parrotfish like I, I'm not gonna think less of the person or you know I don't I'm not on the warpath about it but I do think the the, the lines of morality or um, what is ethical or not ethical start coming into question for me at that point and and I don't support it personally Byzine, what's recommended tank size for the fish Oh, these guys don't get more than like three inches or so, um, maybe four on a big one. So gee, a 20 gallon tank could be fine if it was by itself. Um, they don't need a ton of room. Which you lean, we're talking about the uh, Hemichromus exul. Now, if it's with other fish, it might need more room. Uh, and if you're having aggression, aggression issues, you definitely need a bigger tank. But yeah, I think a 20 gallon would be fine. 20 long would be great. Witchy Lynn, I've been watching your site for Samurai Garamis. Updates, thoughts on community tank in a 75 gallon with Phantom Tetris. 
So I've kind of updated already Samurai Garamis and Chocolate Garamis and that kind of stuff. Um, as far as keeping them with Phantom Tetras, I would not be my first choice, but it could work. The challenge is going to be when Samurai Garamis first get to a new tank, they're very shy. Okay, This is a fish that is normally hanging out in leaf litter. Like you dig through the leaf litter to find it, right? It's not out and about. It's, it's, it's by itself kind of hiding. No, I mean, I'm exaggerating. They do come out at times and things like that. But um, a fish like that, when it's first getting used to its new aquarium, is, is easily outcompeted by other fish. And phantom tetras are very quick swimmers. They're quick to the food. They might be a little nippy. And I think that's going to make it very difficult for the samurai grommy to settle in get over the stress of shipping, get its immune system back to where it needs to be, get to the food and feel comfortable. Now, if the Samurais were already in the tank and were comfortable and knew where the food was and were on the food like that, because they do learn, like Samurai Garamis and Chocolate Garamis do eventually learn that when you lift the lid and your hand goes here, that means food and they start rushing up to it. Like once they get to that point, then you could probably add um, some fish like a phantom tetra to it because the grommies are already stable they're hardy they they're acclimated they know where the food's coming and then you can add some fish to the tank and they're probably going to be fine but i would always have a plan b when mixing something that's a slow feeder and more sedate and um and, and could get nipped on like a samurai grommie with something like a phantom tetra i put the grommies in first once they're rock solid, then I would add the Tetras and I'd have a plan B ready in case those Tetras started nipping at the Garamis or made a problem. So that's kind of how I'd approach that with you. And I think it could happen, but um, have a plan B and, and there's certain ways to go about it to make it most likely that it would be successful. That's my thoughts. Orange cones. Hopefully my quest will, will be all tied up by March. <laughs> Don't jinx me. Orange cones is is uh, making things happen, helping me get a piece of equipment I need. He's been on the the quest for a while. <laughs> Let me say this: if you ever have to do business with Tipper Tie, good luck. <laughs> Just sincerely, good luck. May the forest be with you. I hope it goes smoothly. Visine. Sorry, I didn't type it right. Not orange. What's the recommended take size for the fish? Oh, I, I saw it anyway, I think. Yeah, cool. It worked. It got orange here. And it was orange down here. So whatever you did worked, Fizine. A-Train. How do you take good quality pictures of fish? What background color helps the colors of the fish stand out? So it depends. Um, usually black is pretty good. If you have algae, it doesn't show up as well against the black and things like that. Um, and it makes a fish really in focus. However, if you have a dark colored fish, then maybe you want some light colored sand on the bottom that you can photograph the fish against. So my favorite tank for photographing would probably be a black backed tank with a layer of light colored sand in the bottom. That way, if you need the dark background, you take it against the, the back. And if it looks good against the light background, you tilt down the camera a bit and take it against the light sand. 
but you can also get into contrasting colors and complementary colors and things. So if you have an orange fish, it's going to pop really well against like a dark green background because that's a, a complementary color. That, that's the perfect complement to it on the color wheel. So there's kind of color theory you can look at if you want to get a color wheel and really get into the best color for the specific fish. But in general, black with a light colored sand is pretty good. How do you take good quality pictures? Uh, you really don't. My secret is just take lots of pictures and a couple of them will be good. That's why digital cameras are amazing. <laughs> you can just machine gun it, just right? And uh, go back and a few of them will be good probably. If not, go machine gun again. So that's, that's uh, what works for me. And the other thing is having a decent quality camera really does help. Now you can use your cell phone and all that. And I have, but the, uh, with the Sony, um, a a seven three that I have, it's much easier. Just the camera does a lot of the work for me. If I have a few basic parameters set, right. So, um, yeah, I'm not a great fish photographer though. So from one dude that struggles getting, good fish pictures to you. That's my, that's, that's what I found. Michael Millier just picked up a pair of Fundal Pantax Gardener. Yes. Best fish ever. My favorite fish of all time. Good for you. Tips on keeping breeding best food. They're super easy, Michael. Um, they'll eat anything. Uh, frozen brine shrimp's good. Frozen bloodworms are good. If you're doing bloodworms, don't feed them too many or too often because they can blow it out on you. But frozen blood uh, brine shrimp has enough fiber in it that you probably never have to worry about that so much. Um, you can do flakes and pellets and all kinds of stuff, but they'll eat anything. They're, they're super hardy and super easy to breed. So it really, it's like, how can you stop them from breeding? You can't, but for um, semi-annual killifish like Fundalopanchax gardneri, and that's a big name that not everyone might recognize. So let me just show you this fish. This is my favorite fish of all time. First killifish I ever bred and raised back when I was a kid. Beautiful, hardy, and easy to raise. Great beginner killifish. Look at these guys. And they are this pretty. Like this is not, there's no exaggeration here. They're, they're really pretty fish. Here's a young one, hasn't quite got all its color yet, but once they do, and even then that's still pretty, really nice looking fish. Look at that one, that's a good shot. In all kinds of locations, different color patterns, like some of them, um, the, the ones I like, the typical ones are kind of a steel blue with red dots and yellow margins on the fins lined by a submargin of red. That's very typical and that's what I like. But then there's other ones like this one. Totally different color pattern. Many different locations. Here's one with, again, a kind of a bluish color instead of the, the, the red. Um, and you can get way deep into it. There's some that are called a Nigerianus um, group and some that are the Gardner Eye group. Um, here, look at this one. Very, very different, right? So there's Nasuka, which is doesn't have as much of the bands and all kinds of them. But anyway, really pretty fish. That's what we're talking about. So to breed and raise those, 
Um, there's a few ways to do it. The easiest way is have a bunch of plants in a tank, um, keep the system going, and let the babies appear. Feed baby brine shrimp occasionally, and you'll get you'll get some babies that live and, and raise up in there. Not a high yield, but but no effort really. So if you have enough, like I I used to do it in a say a ten or twenty gallon tank. Ten gallon tank works fine. Half the tank would be nothing but java moss, just choked with java moss growing in it. Uh, the front half would be clear so I could feed. And um, tons of babies would appear. Another way to do it that's a little less lazy and gets you a little better yield and a little more control is put the pair in a tank, leave them there for a couple weeks, then remove them, and then just raise the babies that hatch out in the tank. And then the third way, which is uber production, like getting the most eggs possible, but is more work, but you have more control and higher yield is separate the pair, condition the female until she's full of eggs, then take the pair, put them in a bare aquarium with a spawning mop, maybe a sponge filter for some aeration and filtration, leave them in there for a couple days, remove them. And I would just leave the mop in the tank maybe put in a little methylene blue to prevent fungus, or you can pick the eggs out, put them on top of damp peat moss and hatch and incubate them that way. But um, I would just leave them up in the tank and wait. Um, and you should have a ton hatch out. Baby brine shrimp, in my opinion, is the best, most like reliably good food for newly hatched killifish. They're free swimming right away. So they don't have a, a period where they're absorbing their yolk sac and don't need food. The moment they hatch, they're pretty much ready to eat and they're big enough to eat baby brine shrimp without any problem. So those are some thoughts, Michael. Um, super thrilled that you got them. And if there's anything more specific you want to know, let me know. And keep in mind, they're jumpers. They need a tight lid. I've had them jump out of a 10 gallon tank that only had two inches of water in it. Just they, they cleared that, you know, what would that be? A 10 inch jump, something like that. So they can really jump. Irie 77, any chance of metalhead guppies similar to the black lace, but more metallic? Um, so I know that fish, and again, I'm 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 early Irie in my journey of trying to solve the guppy problem. It's a real problem. Um, guppies used to be a really hardy, easy fish to keep, and now the supply chain has moved how it's moved. Um, a lot of times people have trouble keeping guppies alive. So I've got a lot more work to find a supplier that has healthy guppies or that has a problem that I know how to fix and identify. So um, working towards that end until I get there, um, there's no specific thing that I, I can promise to bring in. I'm just sampling here and there, trying different things out. Um, once I find that, that breeder, that source or that solution though, then the availability will be uh, curtailed by whatever they provide. So let's say I find uh, a supplier of really healthy guppies. Well, then if they have black metal or I'm sorry, uh, metal head guppies, then I'll be happy to bring some in. Sure. Uh, but if I don't find that person, then I can't. So maybe I find someone that has a lot of healthy guppies, but not that particular one then I won't be bringing it in. So Basically, I'm going to look, try to try to solve this problem in a kind of a systematic way. Um, that's what I've been working on. And once I have a solution, then I'll then I'll know what I can do. 
New Mexico Aquatics. Are you familiar with snail called giant ram's horn? Um, maybe. I've, I've seen lots of snails over the years called lots of different things. So are you talking about like the Colombian ram's horn that used to be available, but it's now illegal? Um, I'm not quite sure, but I have heard of snails called that. Yes, but I'm not sure which ones they are. Fish dreams. You know that most, if not all guppies, box guppies die. How can we help solve that issue? So the best way I think for a hobbyist to solve that issue is to breed their own guppies. Um, if there's a guppy you want, bring it in and breed it as quick as possible because if it's imported, it's likely that they're not going to last too long, but the babies will probably do well. So if you can raise babies and as a hobbyist, uh, provide enough that you can share them out with fellow hobbyists, I think that's the most, the easiest, or, or I guess most realistic way for hobbyists to help, uh, other people get healthy guppies at this point. Um, yeah, it's, it's a real problem. We're trying to, trying to fix it. T-Dub, do you plan on getting any standard auto sinkless soon? So T-Dub, I have some. Um, what happened is uh, they're in a tank. They share a tank with some Hillstream loaches. And was it, I, geez, time, man. I can't even recall exactly when. I want to say two weeks or a week or a week and a half ago. Um, I'm not quite sure when. Um, some of the Hillstream loaches died. And I think maybe a couple autos died. Um and so I was like, oh no, what's going on? And so we've been keeping an eye on that. Um, it looks like things have stabilized. It, it appears that the Hillstream loaches had a problem and I'm not sure what it was. We never found an exact source for it, but it's one of those things where we had the Hillstream loaches for months doing great. And then I don't know what changed or what happened, but um, a few of them started dying. It wasn't like a whole bunch. It was just, we lost one. It's like, oh, that's weird. And then a few days later, lost another one. It's like, oh, now there's more than one. And then a few days later, another one. It's like, oh, now we've got a pattern. So when that happens and we can't see any real thing to treat, like we don't know what's going on, often what we do is just uh, give it time. So we let the tank sit and wait for it to stabilize. And we're at the point now where I think it has stabilized, but I'm not, uh, but I want to give it a little more time so I can be sure. So I haven't had any problems in there for a little while now, but I want to give it like a, a couple more weeks at least because I would hate to like think, Hey, they're stabilized, list them for sale and then find out, oops, I was wrong. They aren't quite as stable as we thought, right? Have some more go down or have them not do well for the customer. So I do have some T-Dub. I'm just trying to uh, make sure I don't sell them until, until that tank is totally stabilized and everyone's good and it's going to do well for their new owner. So sometimes that happens. Bob Purcell, can you share the approximate water parameters of the warehouse? Does it change with the season? So... Changes a little bit, but not a ton, not as much as you would think. And we're around, oh, I'd have to look at the lab report. Bob, I, I would be off if I told you from memory because I haven't looked at that. I looked at the report, got a sense of what the water was, and then forgot the specifics. 
but it's it's harder than my water here um and I'm trying to remember exactly what it was i would call it like like medium hard water um can't remember the exact parameters and there are reports uh from that creek from that body of water several reports over different seasons for many years and it does not appear that the parameters change a ton now if we have a heavy rain or like real hot weather suddenly and all the snow melts or something like that then it'll change but um I don't see any reports over the years where it's like this big drastic change. Basically enough water is flowing through the soil and then back into the, so we think of creek water is like water running through a channel, right? That's not what's actually happening. Um, water is running down the channel, but it's also going into the soil, coming back out of the soil like there's all these alluvial gravels and things. So the, the water is going all around the creek and out. Uh, it could be 100 yards in each side of the creek and then coming back and um, could be longer than that, actually. And so there's all this action underground that's happening with that creek water that we aren't seeing. And as it's going underground, it's collecting all these minerals. And it's doing that constantly. It's going from the creek out and back and from the creek out and back. And... Um, the, uh, what are they called? Water engineers, the folks um, at the state engineer's office that deal with the water have told me that by the time the water gets to my location, you can basically count on it having gone through the soil and returned to the creek three times. The water here in my current facility doesn't do that. It's collected right up at the mountain. It's pure snow runoff. Um, it has a little bit done that, but hardly at all. So it's pretty much, it's, it's super soft. It's like only two grains DGH, which is super, super soft. Um, because it hasn't gone, it hasn't run through the channel long enough to have gone out and come back. By the time it gets to me, it's, it's medium hard is how I would describe it. Um, and I'd have to look at the lab report to get more specific than that. Yeah. Medium hard, slightly alkaline, like, like most of America has, maybe a little softer than most of America has, but most Aquarius throughout the United States, they turn on their tap, they have, you know, fairly hard alkaline water. That's what I'll have there. Killers Aquatics and Exotics throwing down a super chat. Thank you so much, Bob. Appreciate it. And it is a Pippi Longstocking-esque cheerleader <laughs> what should we call that one i don't know purple fun <laughs> thanks bob i appreciate the super chat thanks so so much for uh for all the support appreciate it how's fish with regarding to guppies what do you mean by biosafe facility you're talking about water sterilization breeding facilities so i'm talking about a facility that once the fish have been introduced and um, are known to be free of disease that no other fish are introduced and processes are in place to prevent workers and things from bringing any disease into the building. So 
it's it's not sterile. I mean, no no biological environment is sterile, but it's a group of fish that are separate from all other groups of fish, um, so they cannot be so they can't be introduced to new disease. That's that's the idea. Okay, man. There's a lot of want for samurai gouramis now. That's interesting. Did did a YouTube video on samurai gouramis come out or did like an influencer, did Corey or Bob talk about samurai gouramis? It's interesting that this many people are asking about them. Um, I, I will bring them in. I just I just want to wait for the new warehouse because I, I think that'll be the way to do it. Thai Aquatics. UV for pathogens. Now you sterilize use H2O2. So what is that? Hydrogen peroxide or is that ozone? <laughs> I, think, I, I can't remember. Now you sterilize and use H2O2. Okay. I got it. I got it. What's H2O2? H2O2. Is that hydrogen? H2O2. Hydrogen peroxide. Okay. Couldn't remember is that or ozone, but preconditioning 0.5 milliliters per liter, 30%, aerating 48 hours, then add fish with, okay, solve issues, even small fry, direct, and also, okay, so I think what Thai Aquatics is saying, you can use UV for pathogens, or there's a solution of hydrogen peroxide um, that you can use in this dilute format um, that helps as well. So thanks, Thai Aquatics. For those that don't have UV sterilizers and are trying to uh, get some sensitive fish going, it looks like that's how Thai Aquatics does it. Thanks for sharing. Crystals, pets, and plants. Just saying hello. Well, howdy doody right back at you. Thanks for being here. How many do we have here? 170. Hey, I'll take it. I will take it. Crown Tail Half Moon. I was informed that metronidazole could be used for swim bladder issues could work on bettas and what's dosage in food versus water. So um, crown tail half moon, I would say that metronidazole could be used for certain swim bladder issues, but there are many, many, many different causes of swim bladder issue. Swim bladder issue is, is a symptom. It's not a disease. So maybe it will. It depends on what's causing the swim bladder issue. It depends on what the actual disease is. But as far as dosage in food, I don't use uh, medicated foods, so I couldn't tell you what the dosage is. Um, as far as water goes, let me look. So we call that a bath, right? When we put it in the water column, look up my dosage. Now, a big disclaimer here, as I always have to do when I'm talking about fish and medication, is I'm not a veterinarian. I'm just a guy that has tried to save a lot of fish <laughs> and thinks he might know a thing or two about how to do it, thinks that some things have worked, but I'm not, I'm not qualified to, okay, here we go. So verify everything I tell you, but it looks like in a 40 gallon tank, I put a quarter of a teaspoon. In a 75 gallon tank, I put half a teaspoon. And 
it looks like for oral medication, the dosage I have down is one gram for 100 grams of dry food. Uh, and you have to use alcohol to bind that. And it's a kind of a big messy thing. Um, the issue I have, the, the reason I stopped, I did try medicated foods. And if you can figure out a good Rapashi dose for it, that might be a better way to go. But what I found was this. Um, one, I couldn't get the fish to eat the medicated foods very well. I think that there's something about the process of binding the medicine to it with the alcohol that makes it taste bad for them or the medicine itself tastes bad. I'm not sure, but I could, there's a lot of fish that I just couldn't get to eat it. And when a fish is sick and not eating well already, cause it doesn't feel good, you know, it's the odds that it's going to eat something new or something that tastes kind of bad are, are a little bit slim. So I didn't have a lot of luck with them eating it. And then when I did, I never knew what dose it was because if they eat one flake, is that the dose they need? Do they need to eat five flakes? Like it, it's very hard to dose small fish that way. When, when veterinarians treat large fish, what they tend to do is get the dosage, shove it down their throat and inject it into their stomach. Like not with a needle, but with a tube, right? Or something like that, or get a piece of food with the amount in it and give it all in one go maybe. But when we're talking about our little fish, um, how do you feed a medicated food? Let's say they'll eat it. How do you give them the right dosage? It's, it's, there's too many variables. So I stopped doing that, but if, but I know people that have treated successfully with medicated food. So I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not saying it's off the table. It's just for me, it wasn't an option that worked very well. And, and super important, probably worth a shot. Metro is a pretty safe medication, but um, at least in my experience, again, disclaimer. Um, but um, without knowing the cause of the swim bladder issue, it's, it's a guess as to whether it will treat it or not. Fish Dream Z, that solution would be huge, not only for your company, but nationwide. You're busy, I know. I am busy, but I'm happy. Busier than ever, but man, it's nice to get some stuff rolling. It's good to see the progress. It's good to see like the vision and the dream kind of come to reality. Um, yeah, it's worth the work for sure. And I love it. It's hard work, but it doesn't feel like it. At least most times, every now and then, you know, I'm human, but generally, yeah. The word is hydrologist. Thank you, Dragon Lair. The folks down at the state engineer's office who manage water, hydrologist. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Mountaintop Puffer Keeper. That photo of the samurai gouramis on Dan's fish waitlist even made me want them. Yeah, and by the way, that's a picture of an actual fish that I took with our camera. We didn't doctor it or anything. Um, okay, let's show people samurai gouramis. Now everyone will be asking for them. I'm a glutton for punishment. This is samurai gouramis. These pictures are not doctored. Like, these fish are absolutely stunning. Interestingly, it's only the females that get this bright color. Uh, females that want to breed, and they often want to breed, so once they're settled in and stuff, they'll often show this great color, turn this, this amazing color. The males, here's a male, stay more this brown color. Females get this amazing color and pattern on them. So it's rather interesting. It's one of the few fish where uh, 
the female does the work and attracts the mate and induces breeding and things. And it's probably because the male does the work. Uh, the male incubates the eggs. If the female incubated the eggs, it would be the male that would have to be like, hey, this is a good idea. I know you're not going to eat for a month, but come on, don't you want to do this? Right. But in this case, it's the female. Um, so it's just an interesting little twist that we don't usually see in the fish world. But yeah, they're very pretty. Crowntail Half Moon says, thank you. You're welcome. Um, I, I feel like sometimes when I give an answer, I just make it more complicated. And I don't mean to like take away hope or anything. Um, hopefully it's useful information. Hopefully it's accurate. Again, not a veterinarian. Okay. With that, let's go ahead and do this giveaway. It's 820. I think... We reached the bottom of the chat, but it doesn't really count because chat jumps so ferociously that I know I miss some stuff. So if I missed your question or comment, please feel free to list it again. It's not that I was trying to ignore it. It's just that sometimes the chat line, the chat column jumps and cuts me off and I literally can't see the previous questions and comments. All right, here we go. The giveaway, which is for a funky finned, really unique, never seen anything like it before in my life, Turkana Jewel Cichlid. And the winner is Max's dad, Chris. Max's dad, Chris, you have won. You have two minutes to respond and let us know that you're here. All you have to do is say like, hi, or I'm here, or yippee, or whatever, but just leave some kind of note so we know you're here and then we'll take it from there but congratulations um let's see while we're waiting for that i'm gonna get this one kyle's aquametrics den maybe i missed the answer but are you planning to alter hardness to mimic the conditions of the fish's natural environment in the warehouse no not at all um okay so i i hardly ever do that um, what I found over my fish keeping career is that doing that almost always leads to problems. Now, not always. If you're a chemist, right, and you have the equipment and know-how to alter a tank's water and keep it there and keep it steady, then my hat off to you and go ahead. And if you have a few tanks, I think you can do that. You can have an aging barrel where you age the water and get it the right parameters. Maybe it goes through a RODI unit or whatever. You get it where you want it. And then when you do the water change in the tank, you can take the water and put it right back in. You can do that on a few tanks. But what most folks run into is if they are successful at altering the tank's parameters to meet the natural parameters of the fish, um, then they go do a water change and usually it throws it all off because usually they're going to put in fresh tap water or something like that, right? Throws it all off. The other thing is when we see the reports of the water in a fish's natural range, we're seeing one blip. Now, this isn't always true. There are some black water species and stuff that it's often soft and acidic, right? And, and that's a pretty safe bet. They live in, literally live in peat swamps, some of them. But in a lot of cases, it's more variable. 
Um, maybe in the wet season, the water parameters are completely different, including temperature than the dry season, which is when most hobbyists and folks go collect because that's when you can access the fish is the dry season. In the wet season, there's too much water. You can't get to them. So um, we're only seeing little blips. And so just take it with a grain of salt when you're on any of these websites or whatever. And it says pH this and temperature this and all that. Maybe, maybe one report says that. But who knows really what it is during the year as the seasons change and fluctuate. Um, so that's that's issue number one is you can't do that with a lot of tanks. Issue number two is often in the process of trying to get the parameters to match the natural environment. Let me just check here real quick. All right, Max's dad, Chris, is here. Awesome. Max's dad, Chris, um, would you please email me, dan at dancefish.com. The mods have left my email a few times in the chat. Um, I need your first name, last name, and mailing address, and uh, I'll get you a, a shipping plan and let you know when we can ship that out to you. Okay, back to the natural parameters thing. Um, what I've experienced in my fish keeping is usually when I'm trying to make things mimic natural natural parameters, um, I'm putting the system through more stress than it's, and, and more harm than benefit results is what I've found. So what I've found over my fishing keeping career is steady is much better than perfect. Um, if you have a fish coming from soft acidic water and you're able to acclimate it to your tap water and your tap water is hard and alkaline, I think in general, that's the best thing to do because your water in your tank is more likely to consistently be hard and alkaline because that's what's coming out of your tap. Now, you might say I have an R RODI system and, and all that. And yeah, in that case, things might be a little different. But for most folks, it just doesn't work. And the chemicals used to do that are, are not stable. You'll get brief results and then things will bounce around. You can do it with some botanicals and things, but that, that can take a long time. And when you do your water change, then you can screw that up again, unless you're using matching water that you've doctored up that is stable. Um, and in the warehouse specifically, we're gonna have so many tanks in there and be moving so much fresh water through the system that there's absolutely no way to keep one tank at a different parameter than another. So all the fish in the warehouse are going to be kept in the water parameters of the creek that we're drawing the water from. Uh, that's, that's what they'll be in. And I'm not that worried about fluctuations. Um, when they happen, it's not gonna be instant. And also um, in nature, things fluctuate all the time. Like big rain comes, you get a fluctuation. You're at the end of the dry season, that's very different water than at the beginning of the rainy season. So if a fish lives like, now temperature won't be an issue, but if a fish lives, is down at like say, I don't know, down four or five feet down in the water, and then it sees a bug at the surface and it swims up and grabs the bug, it just went through a 10 degree water change as it went up the water column because the water's a lot warmer at the top. Um, at least in, you know, maybe not in an actively rippling stream, but in a lot of bodies of water. So there, there is changes and fluctuations are just par for the course in almost every fish's life in the wild. And they're pretty good at taking them. So, um, 
Now, I realize I just said stability <laughs> is the key, but I'm talking about yo-yoing and things like that. So, all right. Um, with that, I think we've hit just about the end of this. I'm going to take one more, which is Mega Mindy Lou. Hey, hello. When the warehouse is done, can we come get a tour? Yes. See all the pumps as well as all the fish? Yes. I, the more the merrier, honestly. Um, I thought it'd be really cool to do like some kind of event this summer where we get some speakers out and stuff and we can rent lodging at the college and all that, but there's no way I'm going to be able to plan it. Like it's, it's something in the back of my mind that I'm like, Oh, that'd be so cool if I could do that. But knowing I can't, but that's, that's something I would love to do. So yes, come on by. Um, I will need to know plans. Like we'll need to make an appointment just because nothing disrupts a super busy fishing day when you're already at your max capacity of getting the work done and out to UPS on time, right? To make it that day. Um, like people showing up and wanting to talk. So we will need to schedule it. So we make sure it's not during a busy shipping day or, or something like that. But yes, I'd love to have people over. Um, if you want to bring your camera and just document everything you see, that's fine. Like we're pretty transparent here. So I'd love to see you and other folks that, excuse me, that would be amazing. I, I love fish nerds. I like, I like visiting fish nerds. Yeah. Come visit. Dan will hand you a broom. <laughs> yeah. More like an algae scrubber. Hey, welcome. Here's an algae scrubber. <laughs> yep. You know me. All right. With that, we're going to shut this out. I want to start by thanking my moderators for being here and doing what they do, making this work. Thanks guys. Really appreciate you. Um, punch of paints. Are you going next? If so, if so, let me know and I'll, uh, I'll send people there. Oh, looks. Yes. Myrtle Saints. He at Pam's later. So punch of paints, it appears is going next. Usually she goes in about half an hour after I end. So around 9 PM mountain time. So that's 11 Eastern. Everyone that left money on the table, thank you so much for the super chats. Always appreciated, never required, but they do make my wife, Brenda, super happy. Everyone that left a question or comment, thanks for being here and for participating. Hail the Lurker Nation. And uh, if you're watching on the replay, thanks for being here. If you're listening to the podcast, thanks for doing that. Hope we uh, made your work day or your drive or wherever you're at when you're listening. Uh, hope we made the time. Uh, <laughs> a little more fun, pass a little more quickly for you. Anyway, we'll be back same day next week, Wednesday of next week, same bat time, same bat channel. Until then, I hope you have a good one. I've got a whole bunch of fish racks, tank racks to build. So I'm out of here, but I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.